my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And this week, we're getting in the time machine, and we're going classic. We're getting in our DeLoreans. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about that guy that made Casablanca. But he didn't just make Casablanca. He made uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum. He made Yankee Doodle Dandy, Adventures of Robin Hood, Mildred Pierce, White Christmas. Uh, uh, Angels with Dirty Faces. Later in his life, he made King Creole with Elvis Presley. <laughs> All your grandparents' favorite films. <laughs> yep, the Turner Classic Movie Special. <laughs> and this is Michael Curtiz. He's a director that people often use to kind of dissuade the auteur theory. Well, that's the thing. I mean, Michael Curtiz is kind of the quintessential Hollywood studio director where when I watch documentaries about the making of his films, uh, the words that keep coming up are uh, fast, efficient, and versatile. So he could direct any kind of movie. He didn't have a signature uh, style. You don't think so? Because I watched a bunch of his films and there's definitely thematic stylistically that come up. Okay, I mean, we can talk about that. I don't see preoccupations. Uh, I don't don't see his obsessions. Uh, I, I think if he has a style, it might be you know, craftsmanship. Yeah, straightforward, you know, to the point. We watched two movies for this podcast. We watched Yankee Doodle Dandy, <laughs> and we watched The Adventures of Robin Hood. Yankee Doodle... Don't quote that, it's strictly <laughs> off the record. <laughs> Yankee Doodle Dandy is the singing and dancing James Cagney film about, what's the composer's name? Uh, George M. Cohan, who was kind of the great Broadway showman. There's actually still a statue for him in Times Square. He's, I think, pretty close to being forgotten at this point because, um, you know, he he was very popular 100 years ago and he made, he, he wrote Broadway reviews that probably haven't aged... <laughs> all that well um uh, his big songs were uh, grand old flag uh, yankee doodle give my regards to broadway uh very like flag waving patriotic stuff he was very big oh and over there over there over there stuff that was very important to people in the first world war so when i watched this movie the first thing that really caught my attention was wow this is moving fast all the actors are fun it's not as stilted as i thought it was going to be but then i quickly realized this film has no drama yeah okay. nothing wrong <laughs> happens in it yeah i mean it is really it's a biopic about a, a swell guy who was was great and had non-stop success <laughs> never had any problems everyone liked him even though looking on <laughs> wikipedia he did divorce with his first wife to marry one of the dancers in his shows and that's not in the movie what we do get is kind of a composite character who's based more on the second wife mm-hmm. um and I, George M. Cohan himself was involved heavily in this movie, and he had final approval of the film, which, you know, I think... Uh, it shows yeah. in the film. But, but, like, he's a bit of a jerk at the beginning as a child. Okay, he gets two minutes of being a jerk, where, um, as a child, George M. Cohan... So, he tours in vaudeville with his family, the four Cohans, and he gets kind of his big break as being the star of Peck's Bad Boy, which is a by now nearly forgotten, but once popular play. Um, and he's very well received, and so he goes kind of on an ego trip backstage. Oh, I'm I'm the star, I'm the star, but quickly he gets humbled, and for the rest of the movie, he's a great guy. And any time where you think he'll be going in a bad direction, within 20 seconds, he's like, you know what, I was wrong, and I will apologize, and so, everyone's like, ah, oh, yeah, you're great. Yeah, so even in the movie, when he has uh, one of his rare flops on Broadway, and the critics don't like it, uh, he's just like, well... Maybe the critics were right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Moving on. The thing about this movie is that 
the biggest stumbling block that I had for me is that I don't like these songs. Okay, well, this is where we disagree because I... <laughs> na, 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 I na, they all sound the same. Like, at one point when he was like, do. one of my plays is a flop, I'm like, how? How is your play a flop? <laughs> yeah, it's it's all the same stuff. <laughs> okay, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I thought this movie was a delight. I'm not going to go as far as to say it's a very good movie. It was fine. But, I mean, it... But you have to sit there and it's that kind of classic style of musical where you have to watch a number performed on stage for like 10 minutes but i loved those scenes i think so the reason to see this movie maybe the only reason to see this movie is james cagney as, dancing as george m Cohen. okay he dan i love him dancing to me it's just pure bliss he does this thing where he he keeps his back super straight and he kind of bends over a little bit and then he does this weird march across the stage where it looks a little bit like groucho marx walking but but we forgot to point out that this whole film is um, bookended. Oh my god! <laughs> James Cagney telling uh, his story to uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt. So yeah, so it opens with uh, Cohan towards the end of his life. He's just had this great comeback on Broadway by doing a, a weird stage show where he plays Roosevelt and yeah, and Roosevelt invites him to the White House, and, so and then he's like, "Does he say like I forget?" Tell me your life story. No, he, he doesn't. He, he said, uh, Roosevelt in the movie says something on the lines of, boy, you know, I saw the four Cohans back uh, back in 18 okay, whatever. Okay, let me jump in here. I'm going to start from the beginning yeah, yeah. and tell this two-hour dramatic free story. It reminded me of that scene in Walk Hard when uh, when they go, you got to wait a minute. Dewey Cox has to remember his whole life before he goes on stage. <laughs> Can you imagine being the president and having to hear this boring story? Well, I love this because World War II has just broken out. So presumably Roosevelt <laughs> is busy. He's got better things to do. But there's Cohan in the Oval Office uh, just rattling off. And then I love how at the very end of the movie, after his life has been told, Cohen goes, oh, but, you know, didn't mean to keep you here all this time listening to my story. And then Roosevelt goes, no, that's fine. I wanted to hear your story. It's very relevant to the cause we're in now. And then he gives him the Congressional Medal of Honor or, or whatever it was. <laughs> for telling such a great story? <laughs> yeah, for telling such a great story. <laughs> yeah, so this movie is fine. If we're talking um, from the basis of Michael Curtiz, he does a very workmanlike job of keeping things going. It's a very briskly paced movie for... for uh, 125 minutes, uh, it just flies by, I think. Michael Curtiz has been quoted saying that he doesn't really care about actors' performances because he'll keep things moving so fast that the audience won't notice. Well, that's interesting because uh, one of the things that comes up about him a lot is that he was very hard on actors and he was uh, he was a uh, Hungarian man, uh, directed many films in Hungary before coming to Hollywood. And, and he... like big blockbusters too. The mm. one that caught the attention of um, Hollywood executives was a big biblical epic that he made. And um, they kind of like recut it and and resubtitled it because it was a silent film. And then they said, "Yeah, come here and make movies too." Mm -hmm. And I think his first Hollywood picture was a film called Noah's Ark. Okay, so staying within that kind of confines. And then he kind of segued into more B pictures because he became a studio player. But people say that um, uh, he was sort of Hungarian of temperament, which is perhaps a racist thing to say. But <laughs> but I'm quoting other people. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> Wait, can you get away with that? Like, if you say racist things that you're quoting other people? Uh, yeah, I think so. So James Cagney supposedly said, uh, yeah, uh, Curtiz is a rotten bastard to work with, but I, I wouldn't want to work with anyone else or something like that because he brought out the best in people with his um, tyrannical 
uh, yelling and screaming. And he actually had difficulty with English as well. Mm-hmm. So re- whether speaking it or understanding that lines people were saying. So Which is amazing because the dialogue in his movies is incredible. Well, he makes them move so fast. Mm-hmm. It's like rat a no matter what it is, mm-hmm. whether it be Yankee Doodle Dandy, Casablanca, or even Adventures of Robin Hood, the characters are all speaking like so fast to the point of maybe incomprehensibility, but right under that. Mm. Something that um, I want to mention before about Yankee Doodle Dandy before we get off it entirely is James Cagney, like, isn't he really great in this movie? I mean, just as... He's really good in this movie. I mean, uh, George C. Scott uh, famously talked about uh, you can tell a great actor by the joy of performance. And I mean, it's like Jimmy Jimmy Cagney in this movie, it's, it's like he really just freaking wants to entertain you yeah he does yeah. in the you know stage plays he does about a jockey losing what the my favorite stage play in this movie that we see i mean they all look ridiculous but can the, you imagine going to see like a play about like i don't know america I guess? yeah <laughs> like, how america was so great um that was his theme um but i like his his last play his big comeback play okay maybe i should get into the lead up of this george m Cohen retires um, and then we see him living a humble life as a farmer and a couple of uh, teenagers come up to him and say, hey, mister, you know, uh, and they say, what, what what did you do for a living? He was like, oh, well, I used to I used to be in the musical business. I wrote songs. Uh, did you ever hear of Over There or uh, Give My Regards to Broadway? And these kids are like, oh, no, we don't know that. We know Jeepers, Creepers. Where'd you get those peepers? I love that scene because it's so lame. <laughs> Why? Could you imagine like a bunch of teenagers now getting so crazy about Jeepers Peepers? Jeepers Creepers. Jeepers Creepers. Sorry. Um, not really because the film was made into a horror picture starring Justin Long. Oh, directed by, by a that, convicted by pedophile. that pedophile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> we so, love Jeepers Creepers. Jeepers Creepers. So George M. Cohen, I guess his feelings are hurt and he decides that he needs to do a big Broadway comeback. <laughs> to show those kids who's boss. Yeah, to show, to show what real music is. <laughs> over there. <laughs> over there. So, so um, he does this show called I'd Rather Be Right. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> and, and, you. son of a bitch. And the show is about, he plays Roosevelt. And it's kind of a, a toothless uh, satirical review about Roosevelt, uh, where the one song we see him do is he he strolls on stage uh, and he keeps going, "Don't quote that; it's strictly off the record." Uh, or or then the the song ends. That with song him. is endless. I remember sitting there watching it. I'm like, "How is this not over yet?" The song ends with him saying along the lines of, um, "We'll get that that bozo Hitler and put ants in his Japans. And that is strictly for the record. Ugh. What I like about that is uh, war was declared uh, the, the or Pearl Harbor was attacked while this movie was in production. So I, I don't know if that song was actually part of the original George M. Cohen production. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. We'd have to do more research into George M. Cohen. And we're not going to do we're that. We're not going to do that. Let's be honest. So Adventures of Robin Hood. Great movie. Yeah, I really liked it. Really fun. If yeah. I saw this when I was uh, 10 years old, I think it would probably become my favorite movie. I saw it when I was 10 and I thought it was kind of boring. <laughs> really? Yeah, sorry. But I, I liked it this time. Because I thought it actually moved really quick compared to what I remember it moving like when I saw it a few years ago. So this is a movie where Michael Curtiz took over production halfway through. The other director, William Keeley, was fired because the studio thought that his action scenes were not exciting enough. Mm-hmm. And also the movie was going over budget and over schedule. So they got uh, Curtiz in. And not only did Curtiz do a lot of the action scenes, William 
Megan Keeley did a lot of the scenes in Sherwood Forest and a lot of the exteriors. I think um, Curtis, they brought him in halfway through the big archery scene. You can tell because suddenly the angles are all Dutch mm-hmm. and like there's big camera moves, which was a big Curtis uh, trademark. He loved moving the cameras in a way that kind of... Um, Hollywood co-opted in the 90s to define action Mm. when someone is just talking and the camera will start pointed to the right spin to the left and then push in on the person as they're saying their line Mm. not always dramatically um, motivated and they also got Curtis to reshoot some stuff to make it look a little bigger so there's the scene in Sherwood Forest when the merry men are jumping out of the tree um, which is more spectacular than it sounds. Uh, <laughs> it's a big tree. It's Yeah, it is a big tree, and there are a lot of merry men in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a very charming film. Uh, great color. Yeah, that's all you got for me? Like, this yeah. is a film... What do you want? <laughs> it, well, it's kind of like an action-adventure film that ticks all of the boxes that I want. You have a hero played by the drunken Errol Flynn, who is super charming and amazing at everything he does, but he's still humbled yeah. every now and then by his own men, and that makes him that much more sympathetic. There's a romance with uh, Olivia de Havilland. That's right. That's fine. You got some great villains. You got Claude Rains. You got Basil Rathbone. Uh, you have great uh, character actors in supporting roles, like th- that frog-voiced guy who plays uh, <laughs> Friar Tuck. You yep. know that frog-voiced guy? I don't know what his name He's is. He's in a ton of these movies. <laughs> I love him. I lo- He gets a good sword fight in this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, this film is... Like, genuinely fun. And I don't think I need to apply any kind of, like, well, this movie's really old, guys, so give it a chance. Because <laughs> it moves quickly. Curtis has a kind of style that was not that prevalent around this time, which is just, like, making it move fast. You know, we're going, we're going, and then we're out. Did you know that uh, Curtis and Errol Flynn apparently hated each other? I didn't, They made, like, a hundred movies together. Yeah, they, they made ten movies, but... Um, yeah, uh, Errol, Flynn, Errol Flynn actually liked William Keeley more. Um... Supposedly in Captain Blood, which was Flynn's breakout movie in which Curtis directed, uh, Flynn claimed that um, Michael Curtis took the safety stuff off the top of the swords uh, to, just, just to fuck with him. Wow. Yeah, which I don't know if that's true. Curtis made a lot of movies, and we can't do a podcast about him without talking about Casablanca. Overrated? Yeah, not very good. <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> moving on. No, okay, right. okay. You mentioned uh, great camera movement. Um, I think that early scene in Rick's, uh, where it's it's like a twenty minute scene, basically. Where uh, the one where you get kind of mosaic of every character that's in the bar. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie. There, there's a lot. Like, there's not a wasted second in this movie. And in this scene in the bar, like all the players are put on the chessboard, and you find out what their motivations are. There's so much. And and you find out what's at stake. There's so much exposition um, that it could easily become an incredibly boring scene. But it's not because it like intercuts between everything and you don't exactly get introductions, but you jump in the middle of a conversation and you can piece it together as the film keeps going. Yeah, that's right. And you find out more and more about the characters as it goes along. And he just keeps things really visually interesting. Like he has... um, Sam playing at the piano the whole time and it keeps coming back to him. It, give, it He creates a real sense that this bar is this living, breathing place that is the social spot in Casablanca where everyone is. Watching it this time, I was surprised at how kind of uneventful the film is. Because as far as big dramatic moments, there's not really that much going on. It's very talky. Yes. Um, it reminded me actually... Um, you know, here, here's a reference for the kids. It reminded me a little more of Inglorious Bastards uh, mm-hmm. this time around, in that it's a very talky movie with a lot of moving parts. Um, 
that kind of culminates in Humphrey Bogart making a decision. Yeah. Wait, we didn't summarize this movie. Are people going to be confused? No, listen, let's not treat our audience like they're stupid. This is Casablanca. <laughs> Why do you think Casablanca is as popular as it is? Oh, God. Well, that's a question that philosophers have been <laughs> have been dealing with for a long time. Well, you know, uh, in preparation for this podcast, I watched a later movie called Passage to Marseille which Curtis directed and which has many of the same cast as Casablanca and has a somewhat similar story in that there's this long flashback of Humphrey Bogart and his um, doomed love. And it's a good movie, but, you know, it's not Casablanca. And it goes to show you just Casablanca had this magical alchemy. Just all the actors were right. Um, the, The setting was right. The time was right. The director was right. But, like, why... The dialogue was right. Even to this day, people are like, Casablanca, man, that's a classic movie. And you're like, but how did it, like, did it... Like, it was nominated for Oscars when it came out. It won Best Picture. Yeah. So it's not like... And won Best Director. A cult film that kind of, you know, came bigger. Could it have something to do with, like, the Bogart Renaissance that happened? Um, I think it was in the 70s? Yeah, I think think that definitely had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. I think it was a movie that was on TV fairly often uh, at that time. But I don't know. I think it's just an, an irresistible movie. I think you can't... You can't watch it and not love it. I mean, everything is perfect. So you sorry, wa- these are banal platitudes, <laughs> but it's Casablanca inspires banal platitudes. We do not have like hot takes for this movie. Like Bogart, man, he's boring, just mumbling all the time. <laughs> not enough Peter Lorre. That's yeah, what I would not say. enough Peter yeah. Lorre. I think Bogart and Peter Lorre should have switched places. Yeah, but the dialogue is great. Uh, just like it's just the right combination of actors, like Bogart and. Um, Isabella Rossellini's mother. <laughs> what the hell's her name? Ingrid Bergman. Um, like, or, like you know, the uh, ex-wife of Martin Scorsese's mother. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't know, like, just their voices are perfect together. There's there's some, like, sensual pleasure in hearing their voices together. But is this a film that you revisit at all? Or is it one that you're like, oh, hey, yeah, it's good? No, I, I revisit it every few years. Oh, okay. Um, I guess you probably take it for granted. <laughs> it's one of the movies that, when I first started getting into films, I got, like, right away. You know, when it's, yeah. like, Christmas, you get Citizen Kane and Casablanca. Yeah. And I remember watching and going, ah, this is good, and then putting it on a shelf. And I don't think I've watched it since then. It's actually a movie that every time I see it, I like it more. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, um, yeah, I, yeah I, just I think, like I think, rats for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it becomes uh, the more familiar you are with it, the more the more great it is. How do you like that scene where where they sing La Marseillaise? Um, That's a great scene. Okay, it's great, and also j- just the way that keeps cutting to that woman crying, mm-hmm. like that is so powerful. Um, just another example of one of the many great th- great things of the movie that are inexplicable. Oh, that woman died recently. Oh, geez, what a downer. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but she had a really incredible uh, moment. <laughs> what, when she died? In film history, I mean. Oh, crying in Casablanca. Yeah. Um, do you think they put that on a gravestone? That picture of her crying? <laughs> I, they should have. So we talked about all these movies that we liked of Michael Curtiz. So what do you feel are the kind of reoccurring things that appear over and over again? Hollywood craftsmanship. Yeah. Uh, I think that my good guys. There's not very many shades of gray in his movies. But I mean, you could say this about any Hollywood director, right? I mean, I think Michael Curtiz uh, was efficient. He was talented. He knew how to work with actors. He knew how to get the best from everyone. He knew how to make a fast-paced movie. So then, so he started in B movies in Hollywood, and then he got promoted to a higher class of picture. Mm-hmm. And I think, like a lot of journeyman director, he was sort of at the mercy of his material. 
you know? Um, so you feel that he can't be an auteur because he wasn't really leading the projects or bringing his own, I guess, you, you're talking about themes usually when you talk about auteurs, right? I think so. Or, or yeah, preoccupations or even stylistic quirks. But I feel like um, whether it be shadows or stuff like that in Michael Curtiz films and the way they're utilized, because the idea goes, can you watch a Michael Curtiz film and not be told it's a Michael Curtiz film and go, that's a Michael Curtiz film? Well, I, I mean, feel like I could. I feel like you could you could say um, that looks like a Warner Brothers film from the 30s. Mm-hmm. So his movie Angels with Dirty Faces, I think, looks a lot like um, G-Men or Bullets for Ballots or a lot of those kind of mid 30s gangster movies. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that probably has more to do with the studio, the house style than Curtiz necessarily. Although, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say that because maybe Curtiz helped shape the studio. With the studio, yeah. Because you watch something like Mildred Pierce, the uh, Joan Crawford movie that he made Mm -hmm. based on the James N.K. novel, and you can see there, it feels like there's a particular style that he's imposing. It doesn't feel like a kind of hack job. It doesn't, but I mean, Mildred Pierce was kind of a big prestige movie that was probably made with Oscars in mind, mm-hmm. so it would have looked good. What do you see as his style in it? Well, like I, in specifically Mildred Pierce, yeah. well, there's that kind of expressionist style that is always haunting around all of his films. Even something like Yankee Doodle Dandy, I feel, has a hint of expressionism to the way that some of the um, scenes play out. Um, I was looking online, desperately trying to back up my argument that he is an auteur, <laughs> and he is included in Andrew Saris's book, um, The American Cinema. Oh, maybe we should read a little bit of Andrew Saris's essay. Oh, you're going to be a fucking hack and read out of a book? Yeah, I am. That uh, reminds you of someone when you yelled at me for reading out of a book? Listen, I'm not a hack. I'm building on, on the giants. I'm standing on the shoulders of the giants who have come before. Okay. You can't hope to speak authoritatively about someone, as we're doing now, <laughs> without knowing what's been written. We've uh, People have said... Hey, I've listened to your podcast. You guys were t- totally wrong about a whole bunch of stuff you you said. And you know what I have to say to that? Thank you, and we don't care. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> All right. So, so here's a guy. Cinema. Here's a guy who's always right, Andrew Saris. <laughs> he said, perhaps more than any other director, Curtis reflected the strengths and weaknesses of the studio system in Hollywood. The most amiable of Warner's technicians faithfully served the studio's contract players from Dolores Costello to Doris Day. When one speaks of a typical Warner's film of the 30s and 40s, one is generally speaking of a typical Curtis film. And then later he writes. If many of the early Curtiz films are hardly worth remembering, none of the later ones are even worth seeing. What the collapse of the studio discipline meant to Curtiz and Hollywood was the bottom dropping out of routine filmmaking. The director's one enduring masterpiece is, of course, Casablanca, the happiest of happy accidents and the most decisive exception to the auteur theory. Man, Andrew Saris is such an asshole. Well, I mean, Saris is coming to it from the bias. <laughs> he's coming to it from the bias of being in the tank for the auteur theory. And hes I think he probably saw Curtiz's Casablanca as this um, niggling inconvenience. We kind of talked about auteur theory in the Pauline Kale episode, but, you know, when you're discussing it there's a million variations of it like mm-hmm. even saris's um american adaptation of truffaut's document was a very dogmatic one that mm-hmm. a lot of people were like oh he bastardized it and stuff like well that. it's almost like andrew saris wanted to approach it mathematically mm-hmm. i mean does it even matter if curtis was an auteur no but i mean the auteur for me is intent right when i think of someone that's not an auteur i think of someone that doesn't give a fuck Right. And it feels like Curtiz does care about what he's doing. Sure. So uh, imagine Curtiz is like um, 
so you've got uh, Leonardo da Vinci uh, painting beautiful paintings. So then you've got a guy who makes great chairs for a living, and he's an excellent craftsman making those chairs. Um, and he puts a lot of pride in the fact that he makes the best chairs in the world. Yeah, but can he be an auteur of chairs? Well, can he be? Yes, or he can. It, of course he yeah. can. Because then you would be saying, like, this doesn't have as much value as this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Michael Curtiz is an auteur. <laughs> well, you know, maybe you're right. But you, you get what my metaphor is. I get what your metaphor yeah. is, but I'm saying that it doesn't yeah. hold as much weight as, okay. you know, what, what you're saying. Sure, fair enough. So if he's an artist, uh, does his artist come in his artistry? The mm-hmm. fact that he expressed himself as an interpretive artist, basically taking other people's ideas and mm. doing the best possible versions of them. Yeah, because to get that emotional reaction out of an audience, I think he has to understand the material and care about the material. Yeah. You talked about like being a like mathematical and approaching art that way, like Andrew Saris did sometimes for his auteur theory. Mm. And if Michael Curtiz did it that kind of exactly, I feel like no one would care about his movies. Mm-hmm. Then again, he made a lot of movies. Right. So maybe the ones that are like really good that we really like are the exception to the rule. Well, yeah, we are talking about the cream of the crop. I have a feeling uh, most of Michael Curtiz's lesser movies are are quite competent, just because he was working in the studio system, and there was kind of there was kind of a baseline of quality that was coming out of the studio system. They couldn't get much below that because all the technicians were great. So you could almost argue that you know he was a technician sometimes, but when he mm-hmm. cared about a project, he brought something more to it. Mm-hmm. than, you know, yeah. the other lesser films that he made. Also, we're approaching Michael Curtiz through a lens that he never would have applied to himself, which is this post-50s auteur theory. I mean, the auteur theory was not was not even invented uh, in the studio system. Michael Curtiz might not even have known to have thought of himself as an auteur. Um, and also, I feel like the auteur theory has so infected the way we think about film that now we can't help but think of any director as an auteur to mm-hmm. the point where I remember somebody was was telling me, oh, I'm really fascinated by Martin Campbell. <laughs> and I think, well, Martin Campbell... <laughs> Didn't we have this exact argument on a previous podcast? We had, no, we had it in, in off mic. <laughs> oh, did we? Okay. Yeah. And, and their point was, and you disputed me on this... <laughs> Their their point was, well, you know, Martin Campbell is so diverse and uh, does so many different kinds of movies and the quality of his movies is so wildly varying. You know, what is it that ties it together? And I would say, you're looking at this the wrong way. Martin Campbell is just a capable journeyman filmmaker. Mm-hmm. He's not an auteur. He, you know, there, there is no overarching story to his body of work. Okay. But we're trained to think of people like Martin Campbell as auteurs just because, well, they're a director and they're a name director. Yeah. I don't want to harp too much on this auteur thing, but... What attracts me to directors is the work that they're doing and the feeling, personally, that they care about the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that's usually what I apply to them being an auteur, which is not classically what it meant. But at the same time, Truffaut, the reason that he wrote this auteur theory was to kind of shit on the directors who were making big-budget studio pictures that he felt didn't care about what they were making. Right. While uh, people like uh, Michael Curtiz, it's obviously that he does care about what he's making. Yeah, but I mean, none of the French critics really made any claims for Michael Curtis. Nah, they didn't. Uh, <laughs> I think it's also the result of him churning out so many movies. Mm-hmm. When you look at someone like Howard Hawks, which was an auteur darling, yeah. I mean, in another world, he could have the same fate as Michael Curtis and just be, like, ignored. 
Uh, I mean, uh, luck probably had a lot to do with it. Just the fact that Howard Hawks became successful at a point when he could have some sway over the types of projects he got to do and the way he did them. Um, then again, nobody was more successful than Michael Curtiz, and <laughs> but he never became thing. Howard Hawks. But that's the thing is that Michael Curtiz was successful, and you don't want to champion the guy that has nothing but success. Oh, so this is you, you're coming at <laughs> the little this, man. Now. <laughs> you're coming at it with this bad faith assumption. <laughs> Of what, the French critic? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I am. Okay. I am. <laughs> Come on, you read the cage, you've seen the most stuff where you're like, yeah. what is this? Yeah, I mean, guys like us, we're, you know, we're not great intellectuals. We, we, we just, you know, we're just, we don't know that fancy book, but we just know what's You know, right. we just know what's the pulse of the people. It's like, we pick up Kai to Sam and we're like, well, I don't know what they've been smoking. <laughs> what are we doing next week? We're going to be talking about the films of Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah, sure. I mean... Uh, <laughs> wow, what passion behind <laughs> Will Sloan's words. I think uh, he's got a movie coming out next week. Um, so, the Neon Demon. So, yep. we, so we want to ride the wave. Yeah, we're just going to jump on that and hope to get those extra listens. And I think um, I've liked some of uh, Raffin's films, and I'm in favor of him as a public figure, mm-hmm. generally. I mean, did you hear, though, that um, uh, before every take of The Neon Demon, supposedly instead of saying action, he said, let's fuck. So I don't know. But But that's something that I find really interesting about him is that I can enjoy his movies and I've enjoyed hearing him talk and his audio commentaries, but then he'll say stuff like that where you're like, ugh. I like him as a guy who, you know, champions obscure movies and restores them like Tarantino does. Yeah, that's Um, cool. uh, So what movies are we going to watch? We're going to be watching Drive. And by Drive, I mean the Mark Dacascos, Steve Wang directed (laughs) one. And we'll be watching Fear X, which was Nicholas Winding Refn's first Hollywood movie starring John Turturro. Okay, when is it from? Uh, I don't remember. What I've year. literally never even heard of it, so <laughs> we'll f- we'll find out next week. Yeah, it's going to be an adventure, and we're also going to be talking about things like hype, you know, movie brats, and all that stuff. Yeah. But before we go, we have to do our spiel of oh, the- rate and review us on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, just please. Yeah, like what? It'll take you literally thirty seconds. <laughs> just go do it. That'll be your good deed. If of the so day. many people do it, we won't mention it anymore. Yeah. Also, write us a letter. Yeah. What's our email? It's importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. We, we actually have, we have literally only gotten one letter. From a friend, <laughs> which is fine. Um, In 30 episodes? We don't want to sound too pathetic, though, do we? <laughs> We've actually got a respectable number of reviews on iTunes at this point. We do, yeah. But we need more. Yeah. And if you want, we'll save your letter to the end of the podcast. So. <laughs> yeah. And I won't make fun of your letter like I did to that last guy. Good. Can you promise that? I can't promise it. (laughs) All right. My name's Justin the Clue. My name's Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Will, recently something very important happened on the internet. What was that thing? That was uh, somebody assembled 30 minutes of footage of The Day the Clown Cried, which, uh, as I'm sure loyal listeners to this show will know, is the long-suppressed, rumored-to-be-terrible Jerry Lewis clown in a concentration camp film and we should clarify that these are not like 30 minutes that were unearthed they were edited together from like documentary footage and there was recently a german special that had new footage that people hadn't seen and they did recreations as well and also jerry lewis was interviewed for that special which was kind of amazing because he's never talked about the day the clown cried um did you see any of this footage i kind of flipped through it i, I want to take it fresh I, I when the movie finally comes out in what year 2024 i think <laughs> and i sit down in the movie theater or the hollow 
yellow deck or whatever we have at that point <laughs> and have it beam directly into my brain that I'm completely new to it. Okay, I saw the footage uh, twice, um, very slowly each time, kind of like just taking it in. You had to pause and you're like, catch your breath. You're like, <sighs> first of all, what was amazing about this movie is, I mean, Jerry Lewis has always been a pretty interesting stylist, I think. His movies look really weird. And this movie, it looks like Gordon Willis shot it. It's totally different from anything else he's made. Um, also, I, I found the movie... I, I It's amazing to say this because for so many years, all you would hear about uh, The Day the Clown Cried is the fact that Harry Shearer saw it. Mm-hmm. And he said it was one of the worst movies ever made. He said it's like a painting of Auschwitz on black velvet. What people have to remember, though, is that Harry Shearer is famously a huge grump that nobody gets along with. Uh, Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein, the showrunners of The Simpsons in season six, seven, and eight around there, have said that the best compliment they ever got was when Harry Shearer one day went, you guys did okay. (laughs) (laughs) And this is... The classic sure. time of The Simpsons. Uh, yeah, so that's the classic time of The Simpsons. So how could a Jerry Lewis clown in a concentration <laughs> camp comedy hold up? He he also famously said that it's like, if I told you that there's a movie where Jerry Lewis plays a clown in a concentration camp, you would see that this is the best possible version of, of that idea, by which he means the worst possible idea. It's a perfect object, uh, mm-hmm. a perfect, terrible film. Having said that, I saw this footage and I thought it was actually really powerful. And I'm not being ironic or or stupid uh, or or. When you hear that Jerry Lewis is making this kind of movie, you imagine a like. Well, what you expect is something like the telethon, where it's this kind of narcissistic spectacle of oh, I I I suffer for my kids, mm-hmm. or um, you f- you expect something like Patch Adams, where it's like this narcissistic goofball who kind of co-ops this horrible tragedy just as an excuse to make himself look funny or you imagine life is beautiful which is a horrifying film the footage is really sad oh god i mean it opens i mean it's kind of like jerry lewis's limelight what limelight was to chaplin it it opens he's this faded clown in germany uh and uh basically an alcoholic and He's fucked up and he's lost his ability to make people laugh. And because he makes fun of Hitler, he gets sent to the concentration camp. And while he's at the concentration camp, he uses his comedy to make the kids laugh. You know, some a bit of broad Jerry Lewis shenanigans. And then at the end of the film, uh, the SS say to him, um, how about you do us a favor? You use your comedy to lead the kids into uh, the gas chamber and Jerry Lewis goes, no, I'll never do that. And they say, not even to save your own life, which I think, you know, you got to remember that this movie was made in 1972 when there weren't a lot of Holocaust movies. Um, Hannah Arendt's ideas about, uh, well, the, the banality of evil, mm-hmm. but she, she also had a very controversial idea that some of the Jews in the concentration camps were, um, complicit. C- complicit in yeah. in uh, the Holocaust. I think Jerry Lewis is in this wrestling with some very serious ideas uh, about the horrible moral dilemmas that some people found themselves in in the camps. Moreover, I think the movie is about something that scares Jerry Lewis, which is the potential of humor and entertaining uh, and performance, which are things that he holds really dear to himself. Being used for evil. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um 
So I think these are really powerful ideas, especially coming from a guy like Jerry Lewis. Yes. So how excited are you to see the full movie? Now that you have this image in your mind, though, of it being something more serious than you expected, something that's more well shot. And can you imagine the rest of the footage is like Bellboy-esque <laughs> slapstick comedy or like uh, Hogan's Hero? Well, then I would be disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Although, that would be great, too, because, I mean... <laughs> you get some more Jerry Lewis yeah. you haven't seen, right? Yeah. Everybody wins. But I think the movie is uh, is really quite something. I was I found it very powerful. Um, I thought Jerry Lewis's performance was... Like, he's giving a real performance, and watching him act with Harriet Anderson is... <laughs> something unbelie- you never thought you would oh, see. Holy shit. 